Hi folks, this is Jack Spiergo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 24th, 2016. This is episode 1738 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got an interview set up for you today with Phil Williams. Phil is an awesome guy. Phil is a permaculture consultant, author, and blogger. He is the author of Fire the Landscaper and Farmer Phil's Permaculture. His permacultural projects and writings can be found at foodproduction101.com. He's here today to talk to us about something I think a lot of you are going to want to hear about. You know, those of you that live not like where Jack lives, where it's an unincorporated area and Jack can do whatever he wants and there's no department of making me sad to come out and bother me, Yeah, a lot of you live in places you can't do this, you can't do that, this is against the rules, blah, 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 blah. How about being able to develop abundant landscapes right in the heart of suburbia without getting in trouble, without the department of making you sad come up, and without the blue hair old ladies giving you problems? Well, we're going to talk about that today from that angle. Before we do, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, hey Jack, we love what you're doing, we want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show, and I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later. It was February of the next year that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original survival podcast sponsor, because they were first and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? 
If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I got two for you and some major events. I have Dear Sister, I Believe in God, and 13 Principles. That's all one. It's about Benjamin Franklin. I have French Force Labor and Shovel Ready Jobs. And I have some major events. I'm going to read the major events and then one of the two segments. Uh, major event, King George III of Great Britain is born. He will be the king on the throne during the American Revolution. Uh, I find it interesting that one of the fathers of the revolution, Benjamin Franklin, is already a grown man and already deeply involved in politics and, and, and all types of things. And the king that he will one day uh, support overthrowing is just a born infant baby. Just thought I would point that out. Ethan Allen is born in rural Connecticut. He will lean the Green Mountain Boys and join the American Revolution, but he won't make any furniture whatsoever. Uh, the cuckoo clock is introduced in Germany. It's probably not the first cuckoo clock, but it's close. So the cuckoo clock is born in 1738, at least we think it is. Here, let me read uh, Benjamin Franklin's Dear Sister, I Believe in God and 13 Principles. Jane Franklin Meckham is in despair. Her crazy brother, Benjamin Franklin, has abandoned Puritanism and rejected Calvinism. He believes that good works are more important than prayer, but Benjamin Franklin assures his sister he has not abandoned God. He has written a collection of devotionals that he consults daily, and even though he has rejected many mystical ideas promoted by formal religion, he is more than happy to let Jane pursue her own religious ideals. All he asks is that she extend him the same courtesy. Benjamin Franklin has also put together a table with 13 principles listed down one side and the days of week across the top. His table of 13 principles is printed on 13 pages. He focuses on one principle a week. In turn, a 13-week cycle is completed. Wash, rinse, repeat. He's not a fanatic. He's creating a good habit. Benjamin Franklin's list will vary slightly over the years, but there's nothing magical about his principles. Anyone can do it. My take by Alex Shrug, Benjamin Franklin was practicing something the 20th century philosophers call pragmatism. Pragmatism is non-doctrinal. In other words, whatever works, do that. Don't worry about whether it fits into the greater systemic structure. What you are doing is for immediate and practical result. This is the basic principle behind Alcoholics Anonymous. People of conflicting religions can meet to solve their common problem because they never focus on doctrine. They only focus on what works for them. Take what you need and leave the rest. Bruce Lee quote there, huh? They are like shade tree mechanics who check the gas, replace the battery, change the spark plugs. They get the car started. In most cases, that's enough. If more is required, get to, they get the car going enough to limp to the nearest master mechanic. Do what works. That's all that matters. The philosophers that made the idea popular were William James and to some event Carl Jung. But don't read their books. They're not very practical. I wish I were kidding, but I'm not. Read the books that make use of their principles. Um, yeah, I like to talk about this pragmatic view and ignoring 
systemic doctrine for a second. And I want to do it in a way that will make it really easy for people who are of religious faith. Benjamin Franklin is another, to me, famous deist. And I share his ideology. But I understand that some people, especially when ideology is involved, have trouble with the principle. So let's take all the religious connotations here and put them on the shelf. And we can get them back in just a second. And let's look at another type of systemic doctrine. The systemic doctrine of everybody go to college is one example. The systemic doctrine of telling children, you don't want to be like that guy over there with a shovel in his hand. Hey, maybe that guy's happy. The systemic doctrine of everybody in America who's anybody is in debt, right? If we look around us, our lives, even those of us who are like, I'm an atheist, there's no doctrine in my life, there's no dogma in my life, Unless you've actually seen the matrix for its reality, you are completely, in America today, dip, driven by doctrine and dogma. Things that just have to be a certain way. Things that you're just supposed to do. Things that are really important in life, like you have to get good grades in school. For some people, with their plans in life, it's really important that they get good grades in school. For other people, like me, for instance, my good grades didn't do jack diddly crap for me. The skills I learned in life on how to market and sell, that's what did good for me. And we can just keep taking that down to deeper and deeper levels and start to realize how programmed we are, how controlled we are. You have to vote for the D or, I, or the R or you're throwing your vote away. What? You're going to vote for a libertarian candidate? You're throwing your vote away. No, you're throwing your vote away. You're voting for somebody you don't like in a state where that person is going to lose anyway. So you threw your vote away, not me. Uh, by the way, no, I'm not voting for a libertarian candidate. I'm not voting at all. Oh, my God, the world will end. No, it won't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And as soon as you start to free yourself from all the shit you think matters and realize it doesn't matter, all of a sudden you, you, you realize, hey, there's those two spheres again. There's concern way out there in the nebulous world, and there's influence. That's the stuff I actually control. Then you become pragmatic, and when you're pragmatic, you become productive. Say whatever you want about Benjamin Franklin, but the man did so much in his life. It is unbelievable the amount of things Franklin did. Pragmatism is why. We can sometimes learn from success in the past, not just failure. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up, let me remind you, you can help support my show and the work I do by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members to learn more, sign up for the MSB, get lots of great discounts. Let's leave it at that today. Because I want to go ahead and bring on our special guest now. His name again is Phil Williams. He's a permaculture consultant, author, and blogger. The author of Fire Your Landscaper and Farmer Phil's Permaculture, which is a great book for your kids, by the way. That's awesome. We read it to our, our grandson all the time. Uh, his permaculture projects and writings can be found at foodproduction101.com. Before I bring Phil on, I just when I said that we read it to our grandson, I got some incredible news today that I want to share with you guys. Um, as many of you know, my son married a, 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 a wonderful woman who um, had a son from a previous relationship who is, is now, he's adopted his son. Of course, he's, that makes him our, our grandson. And Braylon has been an incredible blessing in our lives. Well, um, I conducted their marriage ceremony as a non-denominational minister this, this uh, summer. And they really decided, since Braylon's five years old now, that they wanted to have a second child right away so they wouldn't be that far apart. And they commenced to getting it done, and they got it done. And we've known for quite a while, I, I mentioned, that I'm going to be a grandfather times two now. I'm going to have a, another grandchild. Um, the, the first ultrasound, they were like, we're pretty sure this is a girl. 
But my wife uh, called me this morning and let me know they had their second ultrasound or third, whatever it is, ultrasound, and now they're sure. So I'm going to have a granddaughter to go along with my grandson. I think that is awesome. I'm, I'm very, very happy about that. And anyway, I know I will be reading as she gets older Farmer Phil's permaculture to her because it opens a child's mind as to what's possible, how we can do things differently. Just like in that history segment, instead of following the doctrine of how you have to have a garden grown a certain way in straight lines or whatever, or how you have to separate animals from food production, you can actually learn how to integrate things and be pragmatic and do what actually works by emulating nature. Everything's got to be in a straight line and all the same, just like the forest, just like the meadow, right? Oh, no, oh, see, maybe, maybe there's a better way. So uh, I really recommend, we're not really going to talk about that book much with Phil today, but I'll ask him about it toward the end. But get a copy of that book and read it to your kids, especially those of you who are like aunts, uncles, grandparents, where you get the kid for like you know a day a week or a couple days a month. It's your way to plant that seed, that evil seed of growing food naturally in a healthy way into a young child's mind so they will grow up and to be an evil gardener. Did you know that four in ten children will experiment with planting seeds? It's real. It's a problem. Talk to them about it. Anyway, uh, I'm not sure what meme that what that meme actually said. Anyway, a little goofy there because I'm in a great mood finding out I'm going to have a granddaughter. Anyway, with that, hey, Phil, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate you having me on. Man, I, I'm really glad to have you here today, Phil. Um, for people who didn't catch your last uh, appearance on the Survival Podcast, could you talk a little bit about, before we get into the main subject today, your kind of your history, how you got into what you're doing, you know, where 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 you decided one day you're going to get into permaculture, what you did professionally, kind of start out when you were a little kid picking your nose in like grade school, like were you going to grow up and, and grow stuff or did you have other dreams or something like that? Because I find that helps the audience like connect to a real person rather than just a, a subject matter expert. Right, right. No, no, I was going to be a football star, of course, and. Oh. Uh, that petered out at D- Division Three, so, uh, <laughs> so I wasn't getting too far there. Uh, I had a tough time finding a job after after school, um, liberal arts degrees. Apparently, you don't get real good jobs with a liberal arts degree. And uh, and so I started mowing lawns for a living, basically. And um, the so I, so I ended up being a landscape, landscape contractor uh, for about a decade in the suburbs of D.C. And it was, at first, you know, it was very small, small time. Uh, everything was done, you know, uh, on a shoestring, but it was, we were in the middle of the housing bubble in the late nineties and, uh, the business grew leaps and bounds. And, and by the, by mid two thousands and we were, you know, we were a fairly large company and toward the end of, I guess it was around 2007, I started to become real concerned about the sustainability of the, the landscape industry in its entirety. So I ended up selling the business and basically moving to rural uh, Pennsylvania, not too far from where you grew up. And um, anyway, so I started doing the homesteading and organic gardening thing, but I really had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't particularly good at it. And then I ended up finding permaculture in 2010, took a couple of PDCs, and I really developed a passion for permaculture. So now uh, during the warm months, I do permaculture consultations. And in the winter, uh, I write permaculture-related nonfiction, and I also write uh, anarchist fiction. Really, really cool. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about your books because last time you had sent me a book and I didn't even realize it was you that I had on the air with it. So I want to hold that, though, because I want to get into our, our main topic at this point, Great. which is, you know, basically practicing permaculture without getting in trouble. 
And for yeah. people that are new to this, you know, that, that like, oh, they just heard about this and they're thinking about growing some stuff and all, they might be thinking, oh, how the heck are you getting in trouble in permaculture? Well, it often involves people like the Department of Making You Sad and blue-haired old ladies that, that right. live in HOAs. So kind of that's where we're, we're coming from with that. Um, for those that haven't dealt with crap like that yet, but can you talk about, I mean, cause you were a landscape contractor and a permaculture consultant. So you, you're talking about altering landscapes either way. Right. And right. maybe in the conventional landscaping, it's a little less of a case, but are, are there some pretty draconian systems that you've seen in terms of, you know, uh, land use and people like think, okay, this is my land. I can, I can put a tree here. Or I can put a bush right. here. But no, you can't, or it can only be this kind or, or what have you. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and that's a big hurdle for, for us as uh, permaculture you know, enthusiasts and, and, con and consultants and designers is that the sort of the cultural bias is still towards the neat and orderly uh, non-productive landscape uh, that's heavy on the chemicals than it is for the permaculture wild, productive, beautiful look that we all strive for. Um, but basically, the more layers of government you have, you know, as we know, uh, the worse it is. So homeowners that have residential zoning with a township, uh, a county, uh, and then an HOA all creating rules for what they can and can't do on their own property, that's probably the worst situation. Um, and then you have things like uh, high-density residential zoning is usually more restrictive than lower-density uh, residential zoning. Cities tend to be more liberated than rural areas. Although, you know, I've found that local mileage can, can definitely vary. For example, um, in the city of Pittsburgh, They're, they're allowing residents to have hens now, which is interesting because I know areas around here where people with acres of land can't have a single chicken. So it does, it does vary by where you are, but uh, definitely the, the, the less layers of government you, you have, the better. I've been kind of blown away, honestly. It's some of the places people are prohibited from chickens, livestock, et cetera. I know uh, my bee mentor, for instance, Jason, he lives about 45 minutes away from me. Uh, he lives in a development where the minimum lot size is five acres, mm -hmm. and they cannot have poultry of any kind. Wow. It, it, it doesn't make sense. And I mean, this is rural Texas, That's but it's an HOA, right? I mean, I think they call his a POA, but it's the same damn thing. Right. So, like, what I told him to do is, well, we have wild turkeys that just live around here. I told right. him, go get a whole bunch of turkeys, poults, <laughs> and just let them walk around. And if somebody says something like, I don't know, they're wild turkeys. You better not touch them. The game, man, the game, <laughs> they get really upset with you. You know, they're not in season and right. we can't disturb their habitat or anything. So, right. you know, well, they're being fed. That's my deer feeder. They eat corn too. I, I don't right. know what to tell you, but, uh, you know, instead of having to be that creative, which I guess we're going to talk about some creative solutions today. Um, what about like the most liberated situation that you've seen is, 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 you know, somebody that wants to come in and, and, and change things for the better? Right. Well, the most liberated situation I've, and I've actually seen this personally, but I've heard it on your show is, is your situation at Nine Mile Farm. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, we don't have any completely unincorporated, no zoning areas. There's no area in the state. Everything is, has at least a county over top of you. But your situation at Nine Mile Farm is awesome. I'd love to have that. I mean, um, we do technically have the county over us, oh, do you? right? Okay. But so we're unincorporated as any kind of city or township. Okay. But the way unincorporated land is handled in Texas is mm -hmm. there is no code enforcement. Okay, the counties great. have made a decision that it does not benefit them financially to spend the resources to enforce codes in the unincorporated areas. It's kind of like 
Hey, Tarrant County, guess what? This, this stuff's all your responsibility. Yeah, we have enough trouble <laughs> making sure people aren't cooking meth and stuff to be worried about, right. you know, the, the color of somebody's grass or something like that. So, and that's pretty much statewide. That's, that's how things are handled in oh, unincorporated nice. areas. So the government has a role. The sheriff does enforce basic law, but we have no code enforcement. There's just okay. no apparatus for it. Gotcha. And well, that is pretty liberating because basically they have one guy for the whole county that gives you a septic permit, right? That's like his, his only deal is to make sure you put in a proper septic. Okay. Uh, and then that's it. And then that means you can get power and you can put a structure and you are on your own and you don't ever have to talk to anybody ever again. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Unfortunately, I guess we pay too many taxes here because they find a way to, they find a way to, to make, uh, you know, code enforcement a priority. But, uh, but basically the, the, the less gov- government you have governing your property, the better. So, um, you know, if you can be in an area where, uh, you don't have, uh, you know, township, county, HOA, all that stuff over top of you. Um, the better. And then if you can, you know, if you can have a situation where the zoning allows for as much use as possible, then, you know, all the better. If you, if you do have a situation that is zoned. Sure. Sure. I mean, because that's a lot of times you get into this whole stuff of, well, you sure you can have chickens. There's no, except you're not zoned agriculture. And we deem that as an act. I mean, there's so many ways they come at you with things right, like that. Right. 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 So, so if you're looking for land to practice permaculture, what type of land should you be looking for? In, in, in terms of zoning in, in local government, like what, what are you, when you, when you get down to like that, that situation, like what are, are there any like red flags to avoid or how do you even find out what zoning affects the land? Right, right. Well, you could, you could definitely go to your, uh, you know, whoever your local government office is like here would be your township office. Uh, you could go to the county office and, and get the zoning maps. And you can find out exactly what, you know, what the zoning is. And, and, and there's even certain rules of whether, how you can change it. Like, like I was interested in changing my, my property here to, uh, agricultural, but because we don't, because we don't border an agriculture, even though we got farms all around us, there's just not a farm that's touching our land. Mm. I mean, they have weird rules about what you can and can't do, that's but. Weird. Um, but anyways, but basically, uh, what you're looking for, if you're a permaculture person, obviously you, you, you want to get the agricultural zoning. And if you can do that, um, that's going to stop a lot of the issues. Yeah, I mean, gloves off, right? Yeah. You know, right. If, yeah. if you have, a, if you, but a lot of us like me, you have the residential zoning tag. And what that does is it, it doesn't allow you to do quite as much. And, it, and basically it boils down to not being able to allow, not maybe possibly not being able to have farm animals and also, you run the risk of running into problems with that wild look that a lot of the permaculture places have. So that's the big difference with the residential versus the ag land. But I've seen ag land where you can get in trouble for that wild look too. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily all roses on the ag, on the ag side either. Uh, but it's definitely less restrictive for sure. And I think you have to look at like your totality of regulations too, because there's places where, yeah, it's ag, but they have these stupid rules like you can be only, you know, you have to be at least X number of feet from roads with certain right. infrastructure and right. from occupied dwellings. You got a small house. There is no piece of your property, even though it's technically okay that you can actually put that structure. And I've even heard from people that say, well, there was a, you know, a barn for the animals. It's been there since 1895. 
Wow. But when code enforcement showed up, all of a sudden now the barn's out of compliance. And sometimes they're able to fight that with a grandfather clause type situation. And sometimes they're not. There's been people that have had to tear down old barns because it didn't meet code. It's, yeah. it, and, and the, I, I hate to tell you, man, that part of the world you're in, other than California, is the worst for it. Oh, it's that terrible. The whole Northeast, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Whatever. It's like, you guys were the birthplace of the revolution. What is wrong with you? It's terrible. You're absolutely right. It's terrible. My dad told me that technically now, if you plant a tree, and I mean, he lives in the sticks of Pennsylvania, but uh, the city of Pottsville has annexed where he lives now, even though there's cities between. It's it's weird. Um, that technically, to plant a tree, you're supposed to go to the courthouse and get an earth disturbance permit. <laughs> And it's like 15 bucks, and they never really give you any crap about it, but you have to do it. I'm like, is anybody doing it? He's like, no. I'm like, is anybody, you know, has the law been enforced? He's like, no. Because where, they, where they're from, you're likely to end up down a coal hole or something. I mean, you really are if you mess with. Now, he said, now the people in town do it, and all it is is a nice little revenue stream. Yeah. Like, they don't even have a guy that, like, follows up on it to see if you did it right. It's just like, you go get it, you pay for it, the clerk gives a stamp, and you, you walk away. And it's just another tax. And it, yeah. in some ways, it's a voluntary tax because it's not enforced, but people are so compliant that they do it. And I guess the, the caveat is, if I were permaculturing a residential house in Pottsville, and I'm supposed to get my Earth Disturbance Permit, and I know no one's coming to look, I probably would just to cover my ass. Oh yeah, of course. You know, of course. Especially if you're doing it. It's one thing if you're doing it at your house. You if I was putting one tree and they can bite me, right? But if I was going to put in 50 trees or something, yeah, yeah. Or if you're a commercial guy like you, you, you yeah, you gotta because that brings attention. Right. Um, for our audience members that are stuck in that oppressive HOA or POA, what what can they do without getting into trouble? And how can they approach that? Well, I, I think that if you're stuck in that situation, and, and, I've, and I've talked to a lot of people that said, oh, I'd love to do X, Y, or Z, you know, permaculture style, whatever, uh, but I'm but I'm in an HOA and I can't. And I always tell those people, that, look, you, you, you can and you should, but you just have to be smart about it. So what, the first thing you need to do is you need to learn what the rules are. Uh, and if you're going to break or bend the rules, uh, you definitely have to know exactly what they are and you have to be able to plan to conceal what you're going to be doing and then and then what you're going to do if you do happen to get cited. So that first line of defense is going to be to keep it hidden and to be on good terms with your neighbors. So your your neighbors, of course, are going to be much less likely to complain if they know you. And then you probably want to keep whatever it is. For example, if you, you couldn't have chickens or something like that, you'd want to keep that in the backyard behind a privacy fence. You don't want to obviously you don't want to put them out in the front yard as people are driving by. Uh, and then you're going to want to be prepared. If, if, for example, you get cited and you have to remove that garden or you have to remove those chickens, you want to already have a plan in place for how you're going to do that. So when that, when that happens and they give you like three days to do it and they give you this threatening letter that says they're going to put a lien on your house, you're like, okay, I already know exactly what I'm going to do, uh, to come into compliance, um, you know, to deal with that type of stuff. So once you're, you know, once you're well versed in what you can and can't do, I would push it right up to the limit. So if it says you can have a lawn up to 12 inches in height, then you can bet my lawn's going to be 11.9 inches when it gets cut. <laughs> and it, you know, if they if they say that you can have five hens, I'm going to have eight. And if I get a notice, I'm I'm going to call them in secret, and then we're going to have, um, you know, and then we're going to be uh, having some chicken chicken soup. Sure. So if it says, you know, you can't have any weeds, then I'm thinking, uh, you know, cardboard and deep mulch everything for the garden and food forest so it looks nice and tidy. Um, so, you know, so those are things that we can do. 
Uh, but the other thing that you have to be really aware of is these laws are constantly that not, not only are they, are they changing, but they, they're just adding more. They never take them away. They're just adding more. So you got to be really aware of, uh, you know, what's happening, uh, with the laws as they change or the rules. If you're an HOA, I guess is, is a better way to put it. I, I think another thing that you just kind of made me think of there, cause I've gotten so lapsed in all this stuff cause I just don't give a damn anymore because mm-hmm. it doesn't affect me. But if I did something that was in compliance that I knew could possibly become out of compliance, I would document this shit out of when I did it. Take a picture with a timestamp, you know, before and after and have basically a book that, that locks solid documents when something was done so that if something changes, I at least have some feet to stand on with the whole grandfather thing. Because a lot of times people do let that slide because it's, it's easier than fighting it, especially right. if the person has their, their eyes dotted and their T's crossed on it. Like there's no way you can't tell me that this was here three years ago because here's a picture of it being installed. There's the metadata timestamp, the end over out. That's when it was done. Now they still might push back, but at least you've got some level of proof that it's been there, especially when it's some blue hair saying something like it's going to affect property values. Right. Well, last month the house across the street sold for five times what people thought it would. And this was here then and it didn't affect property values. Go away, go out. Right. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. That's great advice. Yeah, um, I think another thing that makes me think of is like, so I had this discussion one time with, with my buddy Paul Wheaton, and uh, we were talking about certain ways of doing things, and he said, but that's just basically landscaping with fruit. That's not really permaculture. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually think there's a case for landscaping with fruit. You kind of were on it with like the, the sheet mulching and all, but if I think of the typical neighborhood with the typical, you know, Stefford Wives house, there's, mm-hmm. Depending on the side of the yard, this yard, there's either one big lollipop tree out the front, or maybe there's two or three, and there's little flower beds and stuff like that. And there's no reason we can't take that exact same approach. And that tree might be, uh, you know, a, a self fruitful plum or four or five different type plum tree that actually has the ability to cross pollinate itself. And when you drive by it, it still just kind of looks like every other house in the neighborhood, right? Right, right. Yeah, you're talking edible landscaping, which I think is is fantastic. And I think for the contractors out there, uh, that's probably a better thing to advertise. If if you really want to do permaculture, you know, using the edible landscaping tag is probably going to be more recognizable to people than saying. I mean, you can still do permaculture, but yeah. you call it the edible landscaping might be a better way of, of, of putting it that people will understand. I, I agree. I am using the word permaculture a lot less. Mm-hmm. A lot less in all my communications that are outbound. Now, right. once I get you in the fold, we can talk about permaculture and ethics and layers right. of forestry and stuff like that. But if you say edible landscaping, or if you say regenerative agriculture, a person with an eighth grade vocabulary goes, "Oh, I, I understand that." Right. If you say permaculture, and the person's never heard the word before, right? Then you have to explain it, and a lot of times you don't even get the opportunity to explain it. I mean, so here's what it makes me think of when we started Permethos. We were trying to get our insurance underwritten, and Kevin just took the mission statement of the company, which was design, manage, and uh, build permaculture farms, and use that in the you know the application. So we could not get a policy underwritten. Wow. So all we did was rem- we didn't even put a different word in. We just removed the word permaculture, design, manage, and 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 build farms, <laughs> and they underwrote the, pro- the the policy like like that fast. And that just shows that sometimes we think we're being clever by labeling stuff, you know, as, as much as we can. And sometimes it's better to be a little bit more subtle. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. I guess especially if you were trying to get a regulation change in an HOA, right? Like, right. You know, I want to do this so we can do permaculture. Every blue hair in the room just passes out, right? Right. Oh, right. it's hippie stuff, whatever. But if you just say, so that we can grow more food for the people that live here. Right. In a beautiful right. way, right? That'll improve property values. Now you're speaking their language, even though most of them are probably going to end up dying in their house. So they don't need to worry about their property values. Um, but you're not an HOA, right? But you still found yourself in a bit of legal trouble with your township recently. Can you talk a little bit about what happened uh, with your permaculture site? Yeah. Um, when I moved here in 2009, I didn't at the time, you know, as I said before, I didn't know anything about permaculture. I just wanted to have a garden, orchard, some chickens. We have six, we have six acres here and it's rural, you know, farms around us. Our, our land was actually a commercial orchard 30 years ago, and then they went out of business, and, it, and then it was you know, being cut for hay. So we actually have a nice uh, south-facing uh, kind of hillside. And um, having said all that, it's zoned low-density residential, but farming is allowed in this zoning here. So I, I was actually never concerned. It, it just never even crossed my mind that it would be an issue. And then after we'd been here four years, so here we are in August of 2013, I get a letter from the police stating that I'm in violation of their grass and weeds ordinance, which says that you cannot have grass, weeds, or other vegetation over six inches in height. Um, now, these letters are, are pretty threatening. They, I think they gave me, from the date I got the letter in my mailbox, I think I had like three business days to comply, where they said they would mow it and put a lien on my house. I mean, it's a, the, whole, the, whole, the whole deal. Um, so, I, so I ended up calling the lieutenant whose name was on the letter, and after I told him who I was, I mean, the first thing he said to me was, what do you want? And, and so anyway, he uh, he told me that he wouldn't be out there with a ruler, but it needed to be cut. And so I, at the time, I was like, whatever, I'll just mow the pasture, you know, a little bit more frequently. And I figured if I just, you know, mowed it a few times a season, it'd be fine. So then uh, the next year, in the next summer, uh, August of 2014, I get another letter from the police saying, saying I'm in violation of the ordinance again. Uh, and I was actually at the time that year, I was actually pretty conscious of mowing the of keeping the pasture mowed. Uh, I had mowed that season far more often than I did in the past. And um, I did have a lawyer at that point. So we, we ended up appealing the violation and we asked for a hearing. Um, at this point, I had planted about 2000 trees and shrubs on the property. I had swales. I mean, I've got four ponds, young food forests, uh, timber forests. Uh, so everything is, you know, relatively young. The forests were kind of in the ugly duckling phase. You know, the trees are small. I've got clover planted in the under, in, you know, underneath as a living mulch. So a lot of these areas, now I could still mow some of the pasture areas, but a lot of the areas I couldn't really mow. And even the pasture area, I had planted a wildflower meadow and it was beautiful. Last thing I wanted to do was, you know, uh, deadhead my flowers before they go to seed. Um, so anyway, so, we didn't hear anything back from the police until, I guess, September of 2015, so almost a year later, uh, a little bit over a year after we requested the hearing. And my guess is they got another complaint in August, with the, which, which is what happened. They did. And it turns out that we have a guy that lives in our township that basically drives around and takes the addresses of violations to of all, basically people all around the township and takes it to the code enforcement officer and says, here, you know, go deal with these people. Um, so this guy isn't a direct neighbor to me, but, um, but anyway, we finally did get a hearing date and I think they gave us like a week to prepare for the hearing. And, um, my lawyer, before we went into the hearing, my, my, I met with my lawyer and he's, he told me, he's like, look, you know, this hearing is high stakes. And I knew that if we lost, 
uh, not only would I have to comply, but if I didn't, there would be, you know, fines that are literally, they're daily. I mean, they're daily fines of a few hundred dollars a day. Um, and then there's also jail time. So, I mean, it's not, I mean, you, you really want to get in an anarchist, uh, discussion to, to, you know, to jail somebody for, uh, nonviolent offense. I mean, it's pretty, uh, pretty hideous, but, uh, Anyways, uh, so I ended up contacting, uh, the neighbors that are directly around us and, and some of the teachers of the school groups that we've had here, um, that we've taught permaculture to. And, um, we, we did actually have, I guess it was about 10 people that showed up in support of what we were doing, which is, which was huge. Um, and when I, I remember when, when I remember when we got to the hearing, the cop was there on kind of on one side of the room and then all my, my people were sort of on the other side of the room and it was almost like a, a bad wedding, you know? And, um, there was two guys that I didn't recognize that were sort of joking around with the cop. And I'm thinking, oh no, you know, maybe we have more than just the one complainer. Um, but it turns out those two of those guys were actually the hearing board members that would be deciding our fate. So I'm thinking that, you know, these guys are joking around with the cop. I'm thinking, you know, this is definitely not a good thing. Um, so basically what ended up happening is the rule like I said, the rule, the rule is we can't have, you know, grass weeds or other vegetation over six inches in height. But there's a caveat that says unless the area is farmed, maintained and for agricultural uses. So my zoning, you know, does allow for the agricultural use. So our argument was going to be that we don't fit under the rule because we're farming. Um, unfortunately, it got more complicated than that. Uh, when we started off the meeting, the township solicitor, who's like the lawyer basically for the township, he started the hearing off by saying that I'm the first person that's ever challenged the property maintenance codes here before. Um, so that, that was also another thing I'm thinking this is not a good, this is not good at all. But, uh, anyway, so the, the police officer, he presented his case first and he had pictures of basically of the neighbors. Uh, he had pictures of my property and, um, of course the neighbor's property, they all had kind of the close crop lawns, you know, just a few shrubs in front, no weeds. And mine, you know, looked like a, a jungle in comparison. So, um, so after the cop presented his case, the, you know, my lawyer started and, and, and he started with a presentation of the ordinance. And then it turned out that they didn't cite me under the, or, under the township ordinance that's listed on their website, but they actually used a different weed ordinance that's in the universal property maintenance handbook that's not on their site. Uh, and apparently in 2007, the township in, adopted this entire handbook, uh, into their rules, but they also kept the old rules in place. So basically, my township has two grass and weed ordinances, which is awesome because we needed more than one. And um, anyway, so this the, the the ordinance they cited me on states that same thing with the six inches in height on the grass, weeds, or other vegetation, but it does not provide for the farming caveat. It did provide a caveat for gardens, so our entire argument was sort of thrown out of the window right from the start. Um, so... So my attorney and I, we uh, and the police officer, we were standing in front of the board, and my attorney was asking me questions about the officer's pictures, and I explained to the board the concept of a forest garden, the purpose of living mulch. Uh, most of the officer's pictures, and this was sort of surprising to me, Jack, is that the officer's pictures were mostly from my zone one garden, which is actually weeded pretty heavily. Like, I would have taken pictures from other areas if I were really trying to you know, stick it to myself, but, uh, uh, but, and it looks pretty lush and overgrown, but if you know, but if you know plants, you would, you would recognize most things. Um, the, you know, the board seemed to be sort of digesting the argument. Uh, the police officer was, he was asking me questions about the pictures and 
you know, he pointed to a vine, which was just kind of funny. He pointed to a vine in the picture and asked me what it was. And, and I told him they were grapes. And then, and then he asked me, he points to another thing. And, you know, I tell him, that, hey, that's a, you know, an ornamental grass, Miscanthus sinensis. And, um, anyway, so my attorney, he submitted our own color photos and sort of kind of for evidence. And, you know, and I explained it to, I showed the, the, basically I showed the board a polyculture fruit tree yield. And, you know, it was like a plum tree with, you know, oregano and comfrey, autumn olive, milkweed. I think there was alfalfa and clover and, and I think Nanking cherry also all kind of in the understory. And um, so I explained to the board, you know, the, the whole concept of cooperative plant guilds. And we went on like that for a while. I mean, just going through all these pictures, we presented all our evidence. And at the end of it, you know, the board was asking me if it was a direct neighbor that complained. So I, I told them no. And, I, and I'm guessing that if it was, that would that might have been an issue for them. Uh, but after they, they let all the friends and neighbors sort of speak, which was which that was the best part. I mean, it was really great to hear everyone talk in their own way about how they loved what we were doing and felt that it was a benefit to the community. And I think that sort of pushed the, the board over the edge. Yeah, because those guys vote. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is not a federal election. You can just, you know, run a couple ads and, and make up for the loss. This is a local election. You got a problem. Right, right. So I, I think that definitely sort of pushed them over the edge. And what they ended up deciding is that they decided our entire property was a garden and they voted unanimously in our favor, which was, which was unbelievable. And I, I remember when my wife and I got home and I, I, for, initially I was happy. And then when I got home, I sort of felt kind of, I don't know, sort of a little bit bitter. You know, I felt a little bit bitter about the whole thing. And, I, and it, it really made me, it really struck me how it made me really realize how, how very little power I have on my own property. Um, you know, that everything that I had done and all this work, five years of work and effort that all that could be just sort of taken away by a single complaint. And, um, you know, and that was, that, and that was sort of, that was sort of like a bitter pill, I think, to swallow that to sort of understand that, that our default, like the default of what's legal is basically, uh, you know, is property management that's dominance, pollution and exploitation. Yeah. I mean, that, that really is the. The, the the real problem there isn't just what you're not allowed to do, but what you're expected to do is actually toxic. Right. Exactly. It's toxic. It hurts people. It hurts pets. Right. And you want to talk about hurting property values. Sooner or later, sooner or later, I believe that the average person, or at least a, a significant number of average people, are going to wake up to how much damage this, this stuff does. And when that becomes a reality... And you have a place that's had true green Kemlon crap dumped on it for 25 or 30 years. What will that do to those property values at that point when people get a clue what that actually means? Right, right. I, I, I really hope that that day, you know, I, I hope that at, at one point when we go to, you know, when you, when you get your home inspection, that it required that people start getting soil tests done, uh, right. to, to see, oh, guess what? This one's been doused in chemicals. This one's worth less now. This is this is doused in glyphosate, which is clinically proven to cause cancer. Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, exactly. seriously. I mean, you almost wonder, like, what kind of bizarro land do we live in today when a person is told what they can and can't do with their own property? And I get, I get the basic concern. Like, if a guy has junk cars with trees growing through them in his front yard in the middle of an urban community, that that does damage property values. But People are so obsessed with property values like there's some kind of trophy and they want them always to go up. Right. I guess if you're in a flipping property, I understand that. But the only thing your property value going up does for you right now if you keep your home is get you taxed higher. Right. Absolutely. 
I mean, you're literally saying it's very important to me that next year on the next assessment, when I get my tax bill, that the number go higher. That's that's what people. I don't know if they realize that's what they're saying, but why do you think? Like another thing that we've seen lately, even here and in rural areas, minimum building sizes of houses. Right. Like even in unincorporated counties where they they you can do whatever you want once your house is there. They're they're still saying like. To get your septic permit, the dwelling you're building has to be at least 2,400 square feet. Yeah, it's 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 insane. So they can tax it higher because it's right. a more valuable structure. So people right. are getting around that crap too, though. Right. Because what yeah. they're doing is they're building an attached garage. <laughs> it's basically a big shop, and it's just it's just a concrete slab and a roof, but it all counts as under roof. I mean, but I mean, so now I'm building something that I wouldn't have built just to make you happy. Right. Give me a permit, and that's one of the most liberated places, as you put it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It it really is insane. It really is insane. The system that we've built and and forced people into. Well, and I mean, I think one of the things I, I take away from you is that you were angry after you'd won. Yes. And I don't think people understand that. Like, what? Why a person would be angry even after they won? Because you had to do it in the first place, right? Right. Well, it cost me two grand. The the, the meeting itself was five hundred bucks. The hearing, they 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 hit me with five hundred bucks. Oh, they a, charged you. Yes, to hear just to show up after they accused you. Yes. Yeah, and then my lawyer, of course. You know, my my lawyer was good. I mean, he did a great job, and you yeah. know, he got the money that he deserved. But uh, uh, but that five hundred bucks. I mean, my attorney tried not to pay it. He thought it was ridiculous, and they they almost uh, yanked the hearing and just said, "Sorry, you, we're just gonna we're just gonna." Uh, rule in our favor, but at the last minute he paid the five hundred bucks. I mean, if you want to talk about legitimate extortion, right? We oh yeah, made an accusation against you, <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. wait. I have a I have a right to appeal the accusation. Yeah, but you have to pay five hundred bucks for the privilege, right? I, I mean, I, this is where I, I start to see things like people need to literally take their communities back. Like yeah. the people that run governments this way need I'm I, I've given up on the federal level, as you know, but I think in these small communities, you know, a hundred pissed off citizens can literally take back the community if they want to. Right. But you need a hundred people pissed off enough. And, and God, these people seem they seem going out of their way to create a revolution like they they're almost like we'd like to have our heads rolled because like so you mentioned this guy that drives around and looks for this stuff. I got to tell you, in Jonestown, Pennsylvania, <laughs> Um, he might meet with a couple old coal miners at Lazarchik's Cafe or something one time and not do it anymore. I mean, th- that kind of stuff, people get away with it because people behave relatively civilized. Yeah. But there's a point, and I try to be the most peaceful man I can be today. I try to leave behind who I used to be as much as I can. But there's a point where if you push people hard enough, the civilized man becomes quite uncivilized. And I think in some instances we're heading for that. And right. it'd be much better to have a peaceful resolution to it. But right. well, this guy, this guy get broken you, legs, man. I, I'm not, I'm not advocating <laughs> it. I'm just saying it's gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this guy he gets to he gets to hide behind the veil of of you know the protection racket, and you know they won't tell you who it is. I mean, you don't face your accuser. I mean, yeah. he, he's you know they they are very clear about not telling you who the person is. Although I do actually know who it is. But uh, that's what I was gonna not, say. Sooner or later, those people are yeah. found out for who they are. People are yeah. like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah, yeah, I did actually find out who it is. But. <laughs> well, if his legs ever accidentally get broken, be in Vegas playing dice. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about better things. In your recent book, Fire the Landscaper, you talk about code enforcement being complaint driven 
and purposely vague. I mean, I think we've kind of hit that, but can you kind of expand on yeah. it a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in my township, we didn't actually even have zoning until 1985. So, um, and, and in the code, and actually I have the thick code and ordinance book from, from my township, and they put dates next to each ordinance showing when they were adopted. And every year we get, you can see it, you just look through them, you leaf through them, and every year we get more of these, uh, you know, of these rules. And they never take rules away. They always add. And I think that goes for most places. Then it gets to the point where there are so many rules that everyone's breaking them in some way. And what this does is, of course, this gives tons of power to the police, to the government, to enforce how they see fit. And it also gives an extraordinary amount of power to people that complain, uh, busy, busy bodies that want to make their neighbors live the way they want them to, or simply people that just want to use the rules and make complaints against people that they don't like. Um, so, I mean, that, that it gets to be a, a pretty tyrannical situation. And I even told the, when the cop was here, I was like, you know, I could go to every house in this township and find something that they're doing against code. And he didn't, he didn't disagree with me. He's like, well, we're not going to enforce all that stuff. Um, so basically they just enforce the complaints. I'm sorry, I said, but but they'll enforce yours because somebody complained about it. Right? right, they just enforce the complaints. That's what they do. Yeah. Well, and I also think, like, okay, you know how if you're a good doctor, when you prescribe a medication, mm-hmm. you, you want to know all the other medications that the patient's on because right. some medications conflict with each other. Now, I think that we're getting to a point where there's so many rules, the rules become contradictory. Yeah, and I absolutely. know there's basic legal concept of the latest regulation is superior to the, but no, it doesn't. Like they always try to make that case, but it doesn't really work that way. Mm-hmm. Like if a, if there's a previous law stating something is okay, you can't just like adopt a new code that says it isn't. You actually have to repeal that law if right. they're in conflict. Right. Um. And, and sometimes, but you know, will they follow their own rules? I mean, it <laughs> seems like in your case, they didn't really decide to. To give you the ex- exception because they found that you were definitely within the rules, you made a compelling case that we don't want to jack with this. Like, we don't want to mess this up. Right. right? But if right. they wanted to, they could have still said you're not in and there was nothing you could right. do. Yeah, I guarantee you if I were somebody that didn't have $2,000 to throw at a lawyer in a hearing, you know, I would have just been an, another person that, you know, gets jacked around by local government. Um, you've also built some ponds. What, what kind of permits did you have to go through to dig a hole in the ground and fill it with water? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, the, the pond building. I mean, if you're, and I did a, I did a fair amount of research, you know, before I started building ponds and I've done some, you know, I've done some professionally, you know, as, as a, as a, as a permaculture consultant, but then I've also done them on my own property. And the, the big thing is if you're going to be building a pond in a creek, a stream or near wetlands, God help you because permitting is going to be a nightmare. So for this to happen, it's absolutely imperative that you get the proper permits because if you don't, the fines and possibility of jail, of jail time are, are absolutely not worth the risk. So if you still decide you want to move forward uh, with a pond in a creek or wetland, you'll need to get a permit from the U.S. Army Corps of uh, Engineers, and then you also need to contact DEP, which is the Department of Environmental uh, Protection. So I, me personally, as a consultant and as a as a property owner, I wouldn't even bother trying um, to 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 get, to get that sort of permitting. Um, easier to move. It, yeah, exactly. Easier to move. 
So um, now if you're building a pond outside of wetlands or bodies of water, um, that it, 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 you can absolutely do that. And what you would need, you wouldn't need, you would not need to worry about Army Corps of Engineers. You might need, still need a permit from DEP. Um, DEP actually has five different criteria for requiring a permit. And um, most ponds, unless they're really, really big or along that water course um, or a wetland, would fa- fall outside their requirements. So there's really only the first three requirements. I won't even go through them because they're 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 they're, they're not going to even be applicable. The, the the one that's that that could be applicable to us building a pond, you know, from you know that's going to be filled with surface water that's outside of uh, wetlands and, and and creeks and whatnot. Um, the fourth requirement states that the dam stores water, is not located on a water course, and has no contributory drainage, but the maximum depth exceeds 15 feet, and the maximum storage volume exceeds 50 acre feet. Now, 50 acre feet is about 16 million gallons. So as an example, my biggest pond here on my property is not that big. It's, it's about 2,000 square feet, six feet deep at the deepest. So it's, it's about 40,000 gallons. So you can see at, you know, 16 million gallons, you can have a, a pretty damn big pond. So, um, so th- th- it's not, it's not terrible, um, as far as the DEP stuff goes. Uh, the fifth requirement for DEP has to do with storing fluids other than water, so it's not anything you need to worry about. So basically, it's just that one, that fourth requirement, and you got to be re- really be- building a big pond to, to even fall into that. Um, now, when, w- one of the ponds I built here, I contacted, and now we have to contact also the county conservation district, and basically what they're going to want is like a little drawing that shows, you know, where you're building the pond, where, what, where you're going to put the soil, how you're going to stop it from eroding, that type of thing. And then they're going to charge you, uh, $300 plus, depending on how big the site is. Um, and, and, and the worst thing about it is they can take months and months and months to approve it. Um, but anyways, but with the county conservation district, um, I mean, they didn't even show up on my site. They, just, I, I paid them 300 bucks. They never came. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure, uh, what the purpose is other than, you know, to, to prevent the, make sure people aren't having soil runoff. But, um, one thing you have to understand is that when you're building a pond, I mean, depending on where you live, there might be other permitting requirements that I'm not aware of here in, in my area. It's just basically uh DEP, which you probably don't have to worry about. And then the County Conservation District, which can be a little bit of a pain, but it's just a matter of paying the money. And you know, making the drawing or whatever. Gotcha. I mean, geez, again, I just, I, I just think how lucky I am. Yeah. Not live where all the. You want to build a pond here? You dig a hole and you put water in it. Right. I mean, now I, there, you do get into federal issues with wetlands and stuff like that. Right. Um, but I mean, there's always ways to to do things. I think the big thing is is going under the radar. Like if I. If I decided I wanted to go whole hog, big time property, I mean, the first thing I would do is I'd want a property over, let's say, 20 acres. Mm-hmm. So around 20 acres. And the very first thing I would do is about 50 feet deep, completely around the property, plant the tallest, nastiest, fastest growing crap I can find. Yeah. Right? Just the whole edge would just be this, this, this buffer that you can't see into. There'd be a little gate in the front. You can come through. And you'd have to go around something so you can't even see through the gate. And the rest of the world could just piss off. <laughs> right? And, and you know, the thing is, I'm not that guy. 
I'm not the hermit that wants to live in the middle of nowhere. I'm really not. I'm, right. My wife changed that in me. I think when I was when I was 18, I was <laughs> I was all about that. But it makes you want to do that just so you can be left the hell alone. And it just keeps me wondering, what are we doing? And it, like, so we're talking about this from a permaculture perspective today. But I mean, really, what we're talking about is a liberty perspective. Right. Absolutely. You have to jump through all these hoops. Like, you know, we're working right now to build a, a product that's going to help people keep quail in, in backyards. Because I believe you can do it, even mm -hmm. if you're not allowed to do it. Because when we're done with it, the little device that they move around, it will be so innocuous that only your neighbor that looks over the way, what's his name, Wilson did in, 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 in tool time would even know they're there. Right. But so we'll do that because we accept that we call it design limitation in permaculture. We accept that it's there, but it, it, it is so ridiculous that it's there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, if you look at like the scale of permanence and you start to realize like, When you design a piece of property, there's certain things you can and cannot change. And, and like a, a, a completely permanent structure is a mountain. It's you're not going to move the mountain, right? right. But the, the 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 only thing that's up at, at at almost the level of things like mountains or oceans is regulations. They're yeah. the hardest thing to change. They're the the most difficult restriction to deal with. And when we taught Our PDC for Permit Ethos, Joe talked quite a bit about government, and because he was an anarchist, it kind of turned some of the students off because <laughs> they thought he's making a case for anarchism. What he was really trying to make a case for is if you're going to design and you're, you're going to worry about a, a restriction like the street begins here, therefore I can't plant trees, you need to be aware of all of the restrictions, and one of the biggest restrictions you're going to run into are, are, is government restrictions. You have to be clever to be able to design your way around it. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I don't understand how anybody could be a permaculturalist and not be an anarchist. I really don't. I think um, it leads there. I've done whole shows on it. Like, even if you're not, I think you, you'll end up there. Right, right. It always surprises me. You get the, you know, the real liberal, um, you know, Democrat, uh, social justice warrior type uh, permaculturalist. And that it, it always surprises me because I think permaculture really is a, a, a liberty independent uh, discipline. The, the 14th chapter strategies for a new alternative global <laughs> nation, right? And it, right. it ain't, it ain't the new world order and it ain't the United Nations that they're talking right. about, right? Well, here's my thing though. Here's why I think that's the case. With a few exceptions, I know some people, I know one that hates me. That's like a, a, a Bernie Sanders social justice warrior, Democrat, died in the wool guy. Just right. despises me because I, I kill evil animals like coyotes on my property and I own guns and, uh, you know, they, they probably thinks I'm a Republican. Don't know where that comes from, but, but that, that one guy that I know like that actually gets stuff done. Like he's out pasture raising hogs and stuff. He's actually doing it. So he's right. an exception. Most of these people that come from that purple breather category don't actually do anything. They right. love the idea of permaculture. And what they've done is they've married it to their political ideology. Right. Cause it sounds like something, you know, Uh, social justice because it's food in the city and everybody right. shares and okay, you've just destroyed the, the ethic because we don't share with everybody. We share with people <laughs> that are part of the system, part of the community, they're contributors, but, but fine. They, but they, they hear this thing and they see these videos of people walking through this garden of Eden and they think how wonderful that is. But most of them have, if they're lucky, if they've grown basil in a window. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's why they don't transform because 
what happens is when you do start to actually get off the page and onto the pavement, so to speak, and do things, you immediately run into things that you, you know from watching others, you know from experience and common sense are good things to do. And the first problem you really run into when you get your head out of the poverty world isn't money and lack of funding. It's government. Yeah. Absolutely. And I tell young people all the time that are like this, you know, we're going to save the world, change whatever mission that you're going to go on to solve the problem. Do it. It needs to be done. But you'll find one that you really become committed to. And you'll think at first, if I only had money. And if you're really committed and you really try, you'll find backers, you'll find avenues, you'll find ways, you'll find nonprofits to work with, NGOs to work with, etc. You will find a way to solve the financial hurdle, at least a little bit so you can get going. Yeah. The next problem you're going to run into is government. And they never believe me. Which is and that, and, and that's a hole that there is no bottom. <laughs> it really is. I mean, if it goes wrong for you, that there's a hole that has no bottom. I mean, the the, the idea that you could take a person because their grass is too tall and find them two hundred dollars a day until their grass is in compliance, with no real recourse, because they didn't have to give you the recourse you had. Right. They they right. could have just said we've already ruled. You know, and they try to make it like that because they give you that what five hundred bucks to do it. Yeah. Could you imagine if our criminal courts worked that way? Right. Right. Oh, you, you've been accused of uh, of money laundering. Um, here's your defense attorney. A publicly provided like the Constitution says, but but to have a court uh, hearing on this, you, you have to pay five hundred dollars. Right. Well, uh, to be clear, Jack, it wasn't. It was a township hearing. It I understand. Actually in a court. I understand. But, I'm just. But yeah, it's the same deal. Compare it. It's the, yeah, it's the same. Compare deal. it apples to apples and realize how wrong it is. It's yeah, actually oh, worse. Absolutely. It's yeah. actually worse because there's no judge. <laughs> right. The people that put the laws in place determine whether or not you're violating them. Right. That's so that's like Italian law, right? So <laughs> in Italy, when the lead investigator comes out to investigate a crime, the lead detective, mm -hmm. he ends up being basically the district attorney in your <laughs> trial. Right. And, and you wonder why people get railroaded in a system of justice like this. Well, this is pretty much the same thing. Now, the cop can, comes out and whatever, but the people that are deciding whether you broke the laws or not are the ones that put them into place. There's a, there's a problem there. When you go to a, a, a court hearing, a real court hearing, the judge did not write the law. The judge is now interpreting law. Right. You know, this is, it's a racket is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So people like can't move to unincorporated land. What, what's the more, most important thing they can do to stay in compliance? Well, we talked about um, getting on that agricultural land, and I, I think that's key. Is, is if you can get on to agriculturally zoned land, that that would be my first priority. Um, if you can't, if you're on residential land like me and you're stuck there, um, you know, get to know your neighbors, learn the rules, be smart about what you're doing, and try to keep things that people can see relatively neat and tidy, you know, and, and if you're in, a, in an HOA, I would definitely, to be honest with you, I would try to get out. Um, if you can, I was actually, I was pretty shocked at the HOA abuses that I found when I was researching, uh, my nonfiction book. I mean, it was really shocking to me. There's just, there's so many people that have lost their homes because of petty infractions. Uh, I read about one guy that lost his home because he planted too many rose bushes, Uh, there was another guy that went to jail because his lawn was brown. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I, I read, I read, I actually read actual HOA documents where they mandated residents to use chemicals on their lawns. Like they had to use herbicide, they had to use insecticide. Um, I saw rules where they said that this one actually stated specifically a compost pile or bin has never been approved by this architectural review committee. Never. And they, and they, of course, bolded and highlighted never. And uh, so, I mean, I saw, um, I saw one HOA that said that, um, you know, your gar- if you have a garden, it, it cannot be like you can't you, you can't view it from anywhere. Like it has to be behind, you know, fences and whatnot. And then whatever you plant every year, you have to go to the architectural review committee and get it approved for, you know, for your tomatoes and peppers or whatever it is that you want to grow. They actually have to look at your plan and approve whether or not they're going to um you know, let you do this. And I know there's probably people thinking out there right now in an HOA that, that's listening to this. It's probably thinking, you know, my HOAs, yeah, they're not that bad. But I think you really have to understand that these people that govern on HOA boards, they're often there because they like having power over their neighbors. And even if you do have, you know, a relatively benevolent board, um, you're always one election away from tyranny. Yeah, I mean, that's like absolutely the case. And That's what bothers me. Like people will say, you know, like they're, they're, the HOA is not that bad. Well, that's, that's today's HOA, right? You have no idea what it's going to turn into, but you hit a very key thing there. I want nothing to do with being on a board of an HOA. Right. If, if I was in a place where one existed and I could get on the board, I would do it, but I would do it the same way that like, I might go to some kind of social event that I am asked to go to that I really don't want to be at, but I'm doing it because it needs to be done, right? right. Like right. I would do it to try to disrupt and, and, and not let things get out of hand. But the people that actually want to be, like they actually would campaign for it, like vote for me <laughs> over the other guy. Right. Those people want to control other people's lives. Yeah. And it's – Scary. It's get, what's actually getting more concerning to me is it's getting harder and harder for people to find a property that's not in an HOA. Right. Almost right. all new construction is inside HOAs now. Yep. Yep. It's it's ugh. nah. We're gonna have to like. I I still believe in the first idea for permaethos. You know, a, a thousand acres when everybody has an acre and you incorporate it as a town, you tell everybody to piss off. Yeah, that's, that is. I mean, really, I think it's like the only way to, to solve this. Like, yeah, that's not a lot. It's a lot here. Our, our town government says it's a lot. Yeah, it's in charge of your town government. That duck over there. We've elected a mayor. He's mayor right. of the town. He says it's okay, but bye, go away. You know, um, yeah. you have to change your laws. Sorry, we we wrote into our law that we can't change our laws. Right. Well, if I knew what I knew now, there's no way. There's no way I would have purchased land here ever. It would never happen. That's that. Yeah. Because you've got so much invested in it, and it's beautiful. And and you're at a point now where okay you can keep what you have but I guess it's always got to be in the back of your head that that could change. Right. Yeah. I'm always waiting for the next the next shoe to drop. You know, it's it's a, it's it's like a dark cloud that you're like, hey, you know, what's the next thing they're going to get me on? Because there's other things for sure. Um. So it's just a matter of I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. And and you know we talked about planting that buffer. It's kind of funny. I planted. Uh, uh, bamboo and a variety that gets to be about 55 feet tall all around the border of my property. Just to hide it, like go away. Don't. Yeah. So hopefully, th- I think you know, in bamboo, like the first two years are slow, and this will be year three coming up. So I'm expecting the bamboo to take off this year coming up. So I'm looking forward to that. But very cool. So let's talk a little bit about your books. Um, 
you have uh, Fire Your Landscaper. Tell us about that book. Yeah, uh, Fire the Landscaper. Um, it's it's basically uh, a, 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 it's basically it's nonfiction, so it talks a lot about my experiences in the landscape industry. Uh, gives you the 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 the, the low down truth, so to speak, of what we do as landscapers. Um, you know how it's done. You know how it's absolutely brutal on the properties, but it also delves into some of the things we talked about with the uh, uh, legislation, with uh, HOAs, with local governments. Talks a lot of a lot about that stuff, um, and then it gets into you know the just the a lot of the psychological stuff, the herd mentality, the cultural biases we have for why you know why it is that we maintain properties the way we do, how how this actually happened, and why we continue to to do it when it's so obviously. Uh, bad for our health and, and, you know, bad for the planet. But, um, so, and then of course it's not all, you know, the negative. I also get into very practical ways of, uh, you know, how we can do it, how we can maintain our properties in a healthy way, even for people that aren't necessarily on the permaculture bent, um, just for, you know, regular people that don't even necessarily want to spend more time on their property. You know, I give a very practical ways that you can actually spend less time and, you know, and have a healthier property. And where's the best place for people to get that? Amazon or direct from? Yeah, yeah, it's available on Amazon. Um, the Fire of the Landscape, and then it's also Against the Grain, which is my novel, which is an anarchist uh, type novel that cool. I think people, people would would probably enjoy. Tell me a little bit about that book, then. Yeah, that book was. Um, it actually kind of started as a thought experiment. I was uh, I was sort of interested. I started thinking about, you know why we sort of uh believe the things that we do you know why we uh um you know say hey america's the best why we wave the flag why we um you know like football versus soccer why we you know all these things are cultural in nature and things that we've sort of grown up thinking and i wondered sort of what what would it be like if i took a a kid and and put him in the you know in the middle of the nowhere and said hey he's not going to be exposed to the media he's not going to be exposed to government propaganda he's not going to be exposed to government schools and he's going to have a, a, a caretaker that's very philosophical and, you know, really challenges him, him to think for himself. So basically the story is, you know, he lives with his uncle. Um, the protagonist lives with his uncle in the middle of um, rural Pennsylvania. And they live on kind of a, a primitive uh, sort of natural type farm. And uh, through a, a, a harrowing sequence of events, he ends up being uh, put into a, uh, a foster care and then also into a uh, – Government school, so you can imagine the fireworks sort of go from there. And, and the kids, you know, kids very, very bright, and uh, you know, he creates. And it's interesting to see, you know, uh, where he creates problems for some people and other people he tends to get along with. And um, so anyway, so 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 basically, what ends up happening is the high school ends up sort of being an allegory. Uh, the high school setting kind of ends up being an allegory for our uh, government system here. So, gotcha. Now another thing I'd like to talk to you about is Farmer Phil's permaculture. Yes. Um, that was the book that I said, I, you know, when I had you on, I didn't realize you had written that. And you had sent me a copy. Actually, you sent me two copies of it. We read that to my grandson all the time. Oh, it's fantastic. It is a great book. And it, like, actually, you know, he's five. He was four when we started reading him. It actually hooks his interest as much as any other kid's book. Um, and I think it would be a great thing for especially people like me. Like, I'm the I'm the evil influence, right? I'm the, the crazy grandfather with the ducks. <laughs> you know, my kid's on board with it all. But I, I could see it in other situations where I would be – Grandpa's great, but he's a little crazy. Everything, <laughs> so I think it's actually a great way to spread the infection, uh, either with your own kids or really being nefarious with other people's kids. Right, right. Yeah, I mean the, the the cool thing about that book, and I don't know if you figured it out yet, but there's actually a 
There's a couple things in the book. First of all, there's there's a bunch of permaculture features in the pictures that are true to life. So you'll see hugu culture, you'll see shelters over the warre beehives, you'll see uh, you know swales, you'll see uh, food forestry. You, yeah, there's actually comfrey under some of the fruit trees. Um, so you'll see a lot of uh, you know kind of interesting permaculture features embedded. And I made the artist. I made him. I must have made him insane because I was really on him about oh no it has to be like this technical accuracy yeah no it has to be a fruit tree then and then a nitrogen fixer then a fruit tree then a nitrogen fixer and you know, you know i'm giving the guy a hard time but uh but so there's actually true to life permaculture features in the book which is cool and there's uh, for the little kids there's actually a monarch butterfly in each scene that they can kind of find that's uh, cool. that, and that goes back to a book that um it was uh richard scary's book and it was i don't remember i think it was something like things that go fast or cars and, and something like that. But there was a little gold bug in the book. And that was my favorite ki- book when I was a little kid. And, and I don't remember the book at all. I just remember finding that gold bug on every page. So I, we put the, the monarch butterfly in there. Kind of like where's Waldo, but right. But right. Just not. to give the kids something to, 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 to do beyond just the story. Um, anyway, very cool, man. Um, so um, that would be best to get that on Amazon as well then. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give you the link to my author page and that has all the books right there. Okay, cool. And yeah, give me those links on the uh the discount you're going to do on the electronic versions of those other books. That that would be great. Are those only in electronic or are they a hard copy as well? They're they're a hard copy as well, but okay. the electronic version will be the the 99 cent that sure. you can download. But yeah, you can get you can get hard copy too. Very, very cool. Well, man, thank you for being with us today. Any final thoughts for folks? Uh, no, that's it. I, I just, uh, I, I really, I just really appreciate the TSP audience. I mean, last time I was on, um, the, the farmer Phil's permaculture went way up the charts on, uh, on Amazon. So I, I really, and that was with me being a dummy and not even telling people about it. Yeah, it was great. I mean, the, the, I've gotten tons of support from people at TSP and, and I've got actually have quite a few clients, uh, permaculture clients that came from, from TSP too. So I really do appreciate the audience. Very cool, man. Well, again, your uh, website is uh, Food Production 101. Uh, give me that author page over. We'll make sure that's up. And again, thank you for being with us today. And thanks for fighting a good fight and winning that one. That's it's good to hear somebody win one once in a while. Yeah. Even if it, even if the fight never should have happened, you still want the good guy to win. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. All right, folks. With that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Phil Williams, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I got it.
Thank you. 